This episode is powered by Safety FM. The Crucial Talks Podcast with your host, Mike Saddam. Hello, everyone. This is Mike Saddam, and welcome back to the Crucial Talks podcast. Here on the podcast, one of the things we focused on is how to deal with ourselves as individuals. We have all had hard times at work. We've had hard times in our personal lives, and many of us have hard times just being us. Things like fear just seem to get in the way. Today, we're going to talk a bit about getting out of our own way, because today's guest is Ariel Garten. Ariel is a psychotherapist, neuroscientist, a mom, a former fashion designer, and a founder of a successful tech startup called Muse. She has a great deal of experience in meditation, psychotherapy, neuroscience, and being an entrepreneur. That's why I think she may have some great insight for us as individuals and how we can get past some of the things that keep us from doing things that we want to do. So how are you doing today, Ariel? I'm doing wonderfully. How are you? Doing great. Thank you for joining us. While we start, I want to ask you a quick question about you. Tell us a little bit about you and how you got to this place where you're an expert in meditation, neuroscience, and this tech startup. How did you get here? So I've always been fascinated by how the world works, and I excelled at science when I was young. And then I became even more fascinated by how the brain works and how an understanding of the brain's process can help us actually live freer, happier lives. Um, I was working in a research lab with Dr. Steve Mann. He's one of the inventors of the wearable computer, and he had an early brain-computer interface device, and we began to figure out exactly what the best use of it was. It was an EEG system that could track your brain activity and give you real-time feedback to know where your brain was at. I was also working as a psychotherapist at the time, and myself and my co-founders of Muse, the startup, um, we recognized that the best use of this technology was to help people meditate, that by using the simple EEG device, we could actually show people what was going on in their mind during meditation to help them know when they were focused and when their mind was wandering so that they could either start the practice of meditation or enhance their existing skills. And so um, I came from a background in neuroscience, was working as a psychotherapist, discovered this amazing tool that could help make meditation easier and formed a startup around that. And now we're in market since 2014 and sell all over the world. So that's how all of these streams come together. Well, that's pretty interesting because we've talked to other people before about what they're doing and how they're interacting with others. I find your story fascinating because you brought tech and really the mindset of people together. So that, that seemed really interesting to me. And through this background you have, what I started drawing out was this idea of focus in the mind or when our mind is wandering and the tech that is helping people deal with those things. But it still comes back to that age-old question of what is getting in our own way and why can we not sometimes clear out those negative thoughts and things that are going on in our head. So what are some of these things that get in our way as people that keep us from, from reaching these goals we want to reach? So the majority of things that get in our way as people come down to only one thing, and that is fear. 
Fear is an incredibly powerful driver, and it can lead to very misleading thoughts, misleading feelings, and a general experience of being held back from where we want to go and what we want to do. Fear is created by the amygdala. It's the part of our brain that scans for danger. And as we were, you know, primal individuals, way back in the day, it made a lot of sense to have a very active amygdala so you could scan for predators and dangers that may be around you. We now live in very safe lives, but our amygdala has not really effectively evolved into the world that we're living in. And so it's constantly scanning for danger, but you know, in our, in our relatively safe lives, even though the news may convince us otherwise, in our actually safe lives, you know, we're no longer... We're no longer needing to be on hyper alert at every moment. And so our amygdala still is engaged, however, and is looking for dangers that really aren't that dangerous. Like, oh, you know, that puddle might splash me and then I'll be embarrassed at work because I have a stain on my pants or I'm stuck in traffic and I'm going to be late for a meeting. And the way our amygdala works is that it identifies something as dangerous. It informs your brain of it. It creates a sensation in your body of danger, that feeling that we all know of, you know, stress or anxiety. And it then generates thoughts about this perceived danger. And so the thoughts then reinforce the sensation in your body. So you might be stuck in traffic. Um, you know, cars have slowed down. You're stuck in traffic. You have the thought of, oh, no, I'm going to be late. And so then you get the sensation in your body. Then you get the thought in my mind, I know I'm going to be late. Then your mind sees the sensation in your body and says, well, something's really wrong because my body's buzzing. This is going to be really bad. And then you have more thoughts about it in this really feed forward cycle. And even if you're able to sort of say, you know, it's okay, I'll, I'll just be five minutes late, it's fine. Our amygdala's job is to continue to represent things that it perceives as dangerous. And so over and over again, we'll still have the like, oh no, but I'm going to be late or the, you know, racing of our heart a little bit. And it becomes very difficult to actually make the right decision, which is just be calm where you are because there's nothing you can do about it. And we are instead continually driven by these hidden fear-based thoughts and feelings which reinforce one another. Well, it's pretty interesting what you just said because it sounds like What's happening is the same thing that happened when we went out to hunt and we're going after a saber-toothed tiger, but the thing that kept us alive then still impacts us today. Very much so, and in ways that are truly not helpful to us. And our amygdala's you know, job is to present this dangerous information over and over again, um, and we end up constantly going back to a place of negative or fear thinking because we just get sucked in by what our amygdala is telling us because we don't realize that we have another option. Well, and that sounds interesting to me also because we aren't dealing with these life or death situations, but our response mechanism that we may not have control over consciously is telling us that it's the same type of danger. Exactly. And so that's why interpersonal situations can seem really threatening because our amygdala is, you know, firing as if they're saber-toothed tigers, quote unquote. Um, you know, that's why it can be really scary to talk to somebody about a job offering um, because our amygdala tells us that, you know, our, our ego may be, may be damaged by this. We have all these defenses that our amygdala governs, um, you know, emotional, personal, psychological, interpersonal, and they keep us moving and moving back from opportunities based on fear, and they keep us in this heightened sense of awareness that actually makes it difficult to make clear actions because it's all being driven by 
an ancient system that's not necessarily perfectly adapted for where you are in your life right now. Well, it sounds like this notion of fear really does get in the way because, I mean, just personally, I know how it is. You don't do something because you're scared of the outcome. You don't do, and it could be something little, like not having a conversation because you're scared of the outcome. Um, You might get some bad feedback. And that creates fear. And a lot of times it creates a, an unreasonable fear, something that really wouldn't happen or may not happen, something you may not have control over, like you talked about earlier. So with fear driving these kind of emotional decisions, how do we overcome fear? How do we get to a place where we can at least have some control over that to make better decisions? That's a great question and one of my favorite questions. And what you just described, we're not even afraid of the outcomes. So if I'm at a party and I see somebody important who I would like to network with, but uh, as I think about going to talk to them, I feel a sense of anxiety about it. You know, maybe they won't like me or talk to me. You know, we create all of these stories in our heads. And I'm not even afraid of the outcome. I'm afraid of the feeling that happens before the outcome. I'm afraid of the fear of engaging with this person. Yes, I'm afraid of the outcome, but what I'm really afraid of is the emotion that I'm having now as I even contemplate it. And so one of the best ways, there are two great ways to overcome fear that I know. One is feel the fear and do it anyways. So fear might be telling you, don't talk to that person. It could be bad for some reason. You're going to have this bad feeling, and that bad feeling is called fear. I'm going to feel scared, which is what I feel right now. So instead of approaching something that makes me scared because I don't want to feel the fear, I just stay back with my friends and don't take the opportunity. But if you're able to walk into that fear and say, yeah, I'm feeling fear, but it doesn't matter, it doesn't mean anything, if you feel the fear and do it anyways, you will send the signal to fear that actually it's okay, we don't need you right now. Actually, the intelligent part of my brain that's really going to govern this experience is going to step in and say, hey, fear, take a back seat. It doesn't matter right now. So if you don't let your fear, fear rule you, you instead actually step into it. You lean into the things that you're afraid of. You can actually push through them, shift your experience of fear around them, desensitize to the fear of fear and go forward and do them. So that's tool number one. Well, so you feel the fear. You figure it out. You tell yourself, okay, do it anyway. You lean into it. And this creates, it's almost like you're practicing. You're building the muscles to be able to deal with the fear because it says, you said you can be desensitized to that fear. But the more you do it, it seems like the easier it will get to deal with those fears. Yes, because we're actually afraid of fear. We're afraid of the feeling of fear. And then when you have the feeling of fear and say, hey, feeling fear wasn't that bad and actually there's a huge reward on the other side, then you're able to shift your relationship to that feeling of fear. You're no longer afraid of it in the same way. We're mainly just afraid of feeling fear. And if you say, hey, I'm willing to feel this fear, I'm willing to like take the little bit of nervousness in my stomach as I go up to talk to this person and then you talk to them and it's a great conversation, or even it's not a great conversation, it just was, you overcame that step of being afraid of the fear. And therefore, the fear then loses its power. It seems like that's one way you can start to have an impact on the amygdala. You can start training it to say, hey, in this case, it wasn't as bad as I thought. I was able to overcome it. So in the future, it becomes more, I guess it becomes easier to deal with those situations. Yes. You're literally re-messaging to your amygdala that we don't need to have you here right now. Okay. So that was the first way. You feel the fear. 
you lean into it, you do it anyways, you become desensitized to that type of fear, you begin to train yourself to be able to deal with those things. So what is this other way that you can deal with those, those feelings of fear? The second is meditation. And in meditation, if you're doing a focused attention meditation, what you're actually doing is you're strengthening your prefrontal cortex. Now, the prefrontal cortex is the part of your brain associated with met, uh, with the prefrontal cortex is the part of your brain associated with decision making, with attention, with inhibition, and with higher order processing. It's a part of your brain that's able to actually see what's realistically going on and make better decisions. And when you establish a long-term meditation practice, what you're doing is you're strengthening your prefrontal cortex's ability to assess a situation. And over time, it actually can down-regulate your amygdala. So it's kind of like you've got a dance between the parent and the child, where the prefrontal cortex is the parent. They can see that the kid is afraid of a shadow under the bed and say, hey, it's okay. It's just a shadow. Calm down. We don't need to go there anymore. We don't need to do that. Well, so meditation, you're talking about focused attention meditation, strengthening the prefrontal cortex. What, how is that actually working? I mean, what is meditation really? I mean, we hear about it all the time. We might see it on YouTube or something like that. We know people are talking about meditation and mindfulness. I see it all the time. But what is it exactly that you're doing through meditation? And can it help us at work, at home, our you know, professional life, our personal life? What exactly is meditation and how can it help us? Sure. So meditation is very simple. It's a practice or a training that leads to healthy and positive mind states. So it's a thing that you do regularly in the same way as going to the gym and you practice or train with your brain to lead to a healthier outcome in your mind. Now, the kind of meditation I referenced was focused attention meditation. There's lots of different forms. And in a focused attention meditation, you're putting your attention on your breath. You're choosing where your attention goes. When your mind eventually wanders away from your breath onto some other thought, which it of course will, you then say, hey, I don't want to be on this thought anymore. I'm going to choose to bring my attention back to my breath. So it's this very simple exercise, attention on breath, mind wanders to something else, notice it, choose not to follow the thought, come back to the breath. Now, this might seem very, very simple, but what you're doing is actually quite profound. So most of us go through the world just with the thoughts in our head, and we assume that the thoughts that we have are the thoughts that are supposed to be there. And your brain is thinking about things that are sort of repetitive, sometimes negative. It's just generating thoughts. You're on autopilot. When you do a focused attention meditation, when you're saying, hey, instead of going on to this thought that just naturally is in my head, I'm going to choose to take my attention elsewhere. I'm going to choose to not think about this thought right now and put my mind on something else that matters to me more, you have all of a sudden changed the relationship to your thoughts. You are no longer just at the mercy of them. You're now saying that you have the ability to choose the contents of your own mental space. And what you're doing is you are engaging your prefrontal cortex to really be the observer of your thinking. It's an act called metacognition. You're able to actually see the process of your own thinking rather than being caught up in the thinking. And then you can make better decisions about the thoughts that you wish to have or wish not to have. Well, so why does it work? I mean, we have a lot of people out there that are, they might be line level personnel. They understand mechanics. They understand why when they turn a screw to the right, it tightens it. Why does meditation work? I mean, I think there's a lot of people out there that, that understand what you're saying at a theoretical level, but why does this 
actually work scientifically. Uh, your training as a neuroscientist, that sort of thing. Why does this type of meditation work? I mean, it does sound super simple. So if it's such a complex mind that we have to deal with daily, why does something so simple as meditation work for everybody? Um, so I should start by saying it actually really, really does work. There's now over a thousand published studies in great scientific journals talking about meditation's ability to improve your attention, decrease your stress, make better decisions, manage your emotional regulation, and on and on. And when you do this simple activity of observing your own mind, you're now not caught up in your thoughts. And you're saying, hey, I, there might be a negative thought in my mind, but I don't choose to go there. So a lot of the thoughts that we have are stressful, they're repetitive, and they're not helpful. And when you can say, I don't actually need to follow that stressful, repetitive thought, I can actually choose to take my mind to something that is neutral, you have now changed the relationship to your thinking. And then you learn how to do the same thing with your body. So, you know, we're all kind of used to being on an emotional roller coaster. When something happens, um, you know, you, you're boss says something that makes you feel like you disappointed him. Then we get this overwhelming sensation of disappointment in our body. And then we get thoughts around disappointment. And that increases the sensations of disappointment in this feedbackward cycle. And when you're able to change the relationship to your feelings as well and say, hey, I have some feelings in my body, but I don't need to follow them in the same way. I don't need to make meaning out of them. I don't need to now have thoughts about them. And you disconnect the cycle of thought, feeling, thought, feeling, thought, feeling. You can observe and say, hey, you know, this disappointing thing just happened. I feel that an emotional reaction is coming on. I can see how in the past I would have had, you know, disappointing thoughts about it, but I don't actually need to go there with my mind right now. I don't need to grasp onto those thoughts and just keep thinking them over and over again. I can let it go and say, this was a thing that happened. I had a thought about it. I can now move my attention to something else. I had some sensation in my body, you know, with some feeling. It happened. I can now move my attention onto something else. And this gives us a tremendous ability to change the way that we react to the world. So rather than your amygdala, your fear sensor, center going around and saying, oh, you know, that you're, you're stuck in traffic. This is going to be terrible. And then you have a lot of feelings about it and thoughts and feelings and thoughts. You can say, hey. I'm stuck in traffic. I could choose to go into that entire thought loop I have about how this is going to be late and terrible, or I can choose to take my mind elsewhere. I can see my amygdala as, you know, representing that information to me, but I, you know what, again, it's okay. I didn't need to follow that thought. I can bring my mind elsewhere. And as you're doing your meditation, you're also breathing deeply. You're relaxing your body. So you're, again, breaking the cycle of your body's physiology being ramped up into, you know, this fear response and saying, it's okay, we're calming our body. We're shifting our mind, and we can now make better decisions and better choices. Okay, so, and I like your example because I think it's something we all deal with. Somebody in a supervisory position, somebody, quote unquote, above us somehow in a hierarchy or at home or whatever, somebody we trust, somebody we look up to, they say something to us, we made a mistake or something happens and we get blamed for it, whatever it happens to be, and we get this sense of disappointment and we go into this thought feeling loop that you talked about. So can we walk through quickly, like this happened, say this happens to me. How does it actually look to get out of that cycle? What would I do? I just went into my boss's office. I just got chewed out. I'm feeling these, these feelings. They're taking over my thoughts. 
what do I do? How, what does that actually look like to deal with that? Sure. And that's a really sticky one, you know, because we hate disappointing people. And so we're going to have a lot of thoughts and feelings about disappointing somebody and what that might mean. And, you know, to a certain degree, a few of those thoughts and feelings can be helpful because they can cause us to reflect on our behavior. But most of the time we are so overwhelmed by thoughts and feelings that it actually makes it very difficult for us to learn from our behavior because we end up going into defensive places. We're just feeling bad about ourselves. We're overwhelmed with emotion. It doesn't actually allow us to like cleanly take the learnings from the experience and move on and, you know, appropriately and easily rectify it. So if you had a meditation practice and this happened, you would go in, um, your boss would start talking to you. Now, without a meditation practice, you may be inclined to respond defensively. You know, they'd say something and then all of a sudden your fear and defenses would kick in and like, oh no, my boss can't think that about me. And you, you know, you might respond inappropriately with, you know, lies or anger or defenses or any of these things that try to make you look good, but ultimately make you look much worse because it doesn't actually allow you to learn and reflect back to the person how the situation is really going to be better moving forward. And with a meditation practice, what happens is you might feel the first sensations in your body. You would take a deep breath, a very deep breath. You know, you might have thoughts in your mind of like, oh no, you'd be like, we're going to let those aside. We're going to focus on being a listener. You might engage feelings of compassion for yourself and the other person, which can neutralize the sensation of anger that you have at yourself or them. You're going to walk out of the meeting and rather than having, you know, being stuck in the, uh, being stuck in the repetitive loop of, oh no, I made a mistake. This is terrible. I feel terrible. Oh no, I made a mistake. You might see the thought, let it literally just drift by in your mind and then bring your attention elsewhere. You're going to feel the sensations in your body and you're going to name them. So rather than just feeling terrible and feeling that it's terrible, you can say, hey, I feel some tightness in my chest. I feel some funny feelings in my throat. I feel a little bit of heaviness. And that will allow you to acknowledge the presence of an emotion without going into, oh my God, I am terrible. I feel terrible. This is terrible. You can say, I feel some sensations. That was an experience that I just had. You know, let me observe it and let me see what was going on inside of it rather than let me be bowled over by the thoughts and feelings that I have about it. Yeah, that all sounds great. It even sounds like you can use it right there at the time, but then once you get into private or an area where you can focus a little bit more, you can go a little bit deeper. Yeah, and the key to this is the practice of it. So, you know, in the same way as you going to the gym once is not going to make you stronger a month from now. But if you go to the gym every day, like, wow, you are going to be buff and ready. And when somebody needs that heavy couch moved, you can be like, no problem. And you just shift it over to the side. Um, in the same way, meditation practice is actually building the muscle of your brain. It's building your prefrontal cortex. It's giving you the skills and tools that you have for those moments when you need them. And as somebody with a long-term meditation practice who used to get very ego caught up, for me, it was, you know, arguments with my husband. Initially, he would tell me I didn't load the dishwasher properly and I would just fly into defensiveness. Like, I couldn't even hear what he was saying because I was so busy defending how clearly the way that I loaded the dishwasher was fine and feeling terrible that somebody would think that, you know, I didn't know how to do something properly or that he might have this judgment of me or he'd be mad at me and all of these emotions associated with it. And now after a long-term meditation practice, he'll say something about the dishwasher and it really doesn't matter. I don't care that I didn't load it properly. 
I don't need feel the need to defend. I don't I'm not so deeply in you know protective of my own ego and my own need to be right. And he'll say, this is a better way to load the dishwasher, and I'll actually learn from it. Prior to that, I could never learn because I was so busy just defending my old way of, wrong way of doing something. Now it's like, oh, okay, I don't have a reaction to it, and therefore I'm open to learning. But it took time. You know, it takes a long, regular practice of, you know, about 10 minutes a day to practice this skill so that you have it literally every day when you will use it moving going, going forward. Well, I love everything you've talked to us about so far, and I really think there's some people who would be interested in reaching out to you for a little more information, and I know we haven't even covered the tech that would help us with this meditation practice. So, if they want to get a hold of you, what kind of services do you offer, and how's the best way they can actually contact you? Sure. So, Muse is widely available. You can find it on Amazon or choosemuse.com. It gives you real-time feedback on your meditation to know when you're focused and to be cued as to when your mind is wandering so that you can build that metacognition. Um, and it lets you start or enhance your meditation practice. So, there's lots of people that never meditated before and bought a Muse and they're like, wow, now I can meditate. I've actually now met meditation teachers who began their practice using Muse. And it gives you real data. So one of the things that you get is actual real data on what's happening in your brain, your heart, your breath, and your body so that you can really see it and learn and build and grow the practice. Um, if you want to get a hold of me personally, you can find me on Twitter, Ariel.Garten, or Instagram, Ariel's Musings. Awesome. I think that's great information you've given us. I love the idea that you've developed what is an internal mindful practice into something that we can actually use tech to gather data about and get better at. I think that is super cool. So everybody out there, if you get a chance, take a look at Muse, reach out to Ariel, see what she's got going on. It's great information. And Ariel, thanks again for coming on to the podcast. I really appreciate all this information you gave us. My pleasure. A complete pleasure. Well, thanks again. And everyone out there, if you have a chance, if you have any questions for me, go ahead and visit me at CrucialTalks.com and connect with me via email, LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. Also, if you do me a quick favor, share the podcast, leave a review and rate it. That would be great. Have a wonderful week. And remember, if we want to understand behavior, we need to understand what drives people. Please review, share, and subscribe to the Crucial Talks podcast. Visit CrucialTalks.com.